Well, good morning to you. Good to see you today. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 4. It's a beautiful day. You got to love it. It's one thing about this yellow gem is the windows and the sun coming through. If it doesn't blind you, it's beautiful. It's a pretty day. Nehemiah 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 15, read all the way through the end of the chapter, Nehemiah 4, verse 15. I will draw your attention to the order of service or the bulletin you received this morning. If you look at the title there, um, the title of this sermon is not um, Shoves and Swords. Uh, I don't know how that got on there. There was a little something lost in translation between me and Levi and the printer. Uh, This uh, title of the sermon is Shovels and Swords. So not Shoves and Swords. My my son Joshua walked up and said, man, that's a a cool title for a sermon right there. We're going to shove one another today. Shovels and Swords, Nehemiah 4, verse 15. Uh, and and uh, just to kind of catch up to speeder, I started a, sermon, uh, a series on the book of Nehemiah a few weeks ago, uh, just to remind you of the background for this book. Before Nehemiah was ever born, the Jewish people were taken into exile in Babylon, uh, but 70 years later, the king of Persia decreed that the Jews could return to their land. And in chapter 2 of this book of Nehemiah, uh, this man, Nehemiah, arrived in Jerusalem, came out of exile, back to Jerusalem uh, to rebuild the city walls, which the Babylonians had destroyed. Uh, Nehemiah rallied the people, said, let us rise and build. And man, in chapter 3, the people then rose up and working side by side around the city, they They began to rebuild the city walls. The walls at this point in the book are now about halfway up, so they're about 10 feet high or so. Uh, The the breaches in the walls are now beginning to close. So that's where we are now. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray and then we'll read. Father, we just thank you for every opportunity to open your word. And I just ask you now, Father, for the blessing of your spirit upon our time. Lord God, do not let this be a a time where we would just open and read and walk away unchanged. I just ask you, Father, that you would send your spirit, that you would do a work in our hearts today. I pray, Father, that my my face, my words, the, the tone of my voice would accurately reflect the incredible Savior who has given his life to set us free from sin and bring us uh, to you eternally. Uh, Father, we just offer this time to you. We are so dependent upon you, Lord God. If you don't move in our hearts and our minds, we will be unchanged. So we look to you and ask you, Father, uh, will you move upon this time, move upon this sermon, cause this little five loaves and two, uh, two, two fish to be uh, broken uh, for us today and, and blessed so that we might receive uh, great things from your word. We thank you for it now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction And half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, and 
The leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Amen. Uh, Some of you uh, are probably familiar with with the Chronicles of Narnia book series by C.S. Lewis. Um, I've read uh, some of those books to a few of my kids. And, and uh, one thing I have thoroughly enjoyed while reading those books to my kids is watching their faces uh, when they finally realize that different parts of that story are ultimately pointing to Christ or the Christian life. C.S. Lewis was a Christian and he he wrote that series to be a simple fantasy story. Many of you know it uh, with all the different characters, Aslan, the lion, but many parts of that story are actually pictures of Christ and the Christian life. The voyage of the Don Treader, for example, is a picture of being born again. Uh, The last battle is a picture of a Christian's final entry into into heaven. And man, it has been so fun to, to see the looks on my kids' faces uh, when at various points along the line, the, the light bulb has kind of come on and they have suddenly caught uh, one of the pictures there in the story. Uh, when Aslan, for instance, when he uh, gave his life, when, when in order to save Edmund, he allowed the white witch to to put him to death on the stone table, uh, but then the stone table cracks and Aslan comes back to life. And when Lucy then asks Aslan what it all means, Aslan then replies with that great line. He says, it means, Lucy, that even though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, But if she could have looked a little farther back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And man, it, uh, <laughs> it gets me even thinking about it at some point uh, in that part of the story. Uh, I would see the coin drop in my kids' eyes and this look would dawn on their faces and they would say, wait a minute, Daddy, that's just like Jesus. And yes, it is. 
Uh, so, so fun for me. Some of you may remember those MasterCard commercials. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia books, $30. <laughs> Reading lamp, $9. The looks on my kids' faces, priceless. Truly are some things that money cannot buy. And you know what's great about the passage that we just read right there? Man, that passage right there is also a pretty good picture of something else. You may not re- have realized it at first glance, that, but that passage right there is also a really good picture of the Christian life. You may be here today and you don't know very much about the Christian life. You don't know what the Christian life entails. And if that's you, well, uh, take heart because that passage there is a pretty decent picture of the Christian life. You don't see in that passage everything that is entailed in the Christian life, but you do see several things that are entailed in the Christian life. I think we can see in that passage there eight different things that are part of the Christian life. Eight different marks or characteristics of the Christian life. And the first thing we see there in that passage that we also find in the Christian life is a task. The people in this story, in, in, throughout the book of Nehemiah, they have a task. They are working, all of them. They are, they are working on a particular building project, a God-given task, a common task. All of the people working together to do the same thing, to, to build something, to build these walls around the city of Jerusalem. And that is a fantastic picture of the Christian life. Because believers, people who trust in Christ, well, we also have a task, a common task. We have a God-given task, something that God wants all of us to work together to build. And what is it that God wants us to build? Well, God wants us to build his church, the body of Christ. Matthew 28, Jesus tells us to make disciples. Jesus wants all of us, all believers, to work together to expand the body of Christ, bringing unbelievers to faith in Christ. And Jesus also wants us to strengthen the body of Christ, bringing other believers to maturity in Christ. Similar to these people in this passage here, we have a task. We have something to build. These people here, they built an earthly Jerusalem. But God has called every believer to work together to build what the Bible calls the heavenly Jerusalem, the body of Christ. And man, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I didn't realize this, that we had something to do. <laughs> I just didn't get it for some reason. And I thought Christianity was really just sitting around in meetings, listening to people talk. But man, if you think that's what Christianity is, let me tell you, there is much more to Christianity than sitting and listening to people talk. Christianity is about getting up and doing something. And we have a calling, we have a task as the people of God. God has called us to build his church, the body of Christ. What a privilege to be able to do that. We've been called by God to make disciples and build the church. 
So that's one thing here that we also find in the Christian life. There's, there's a task here. And man, a second thing that we find here that we also find in the Christian life, there is opposition. Nehemiah says there in verse 15, he talks there about enemies. And one thing we have seen throughout this entire book so far, one thing we will see throughout this entire building project, from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 6, when the walls are finally built, one thing we will see is opposition. Enemies that fervently oppose the building of these walls. They don't want the Jewish people to build the walls around the city of Jerusalem. In the previous passage, we just saw a ton of opposition. And the enemies of of God, the enemies of God's people, trying to to frighten and discourage the the builders with taunts and, and threats and rumors. Trying to get the builders to stop building. But Nehemiah says in verse 15 that God frustrated the enemy's plans and the people just kept building. And you know, you think about all the opposition in this book, I've already talked about this, all of the, the flesh and blood enemies in this book, they, they are all ultimately stirred up by Satan. Ephesians 6 says we don't ultimately wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan simply hates God. And Satan will oppose every single genuine work of God. The powers of darkness do not want God to accomplish things on this earth. They will oppose. And here in this book, Satan is working behind the scenes. He's stirring up flesh and blood enemies who oppose the people of God and try to keep them from building these walls. What a great picture of the Christian life. Because we have a task as believers to build the church, to make disciples. But we will also face some serious opposition when we genuinely rise up to to take part in that God-given task. When these people here in this book, man, when, when, when they labored here to build this earthly Jerusalem, well, Satan opposed them. And when believers today, when we truly rise up to build the heavenly Jerusalem, the church, when believers work together in any sort of way to make disciples of unbelievers and believers, well, Satan will oppose. He does not care all that much if all we do is sit in meetings and listen to things. He's not that worried about that. But when believers truly join together and begin to rise up together and they're no longer just hearers of the word of God, but they're actually going to be hearers and doers of the word of God, Satan will then oppose the people of God. He does not want us to make disciples. He does not want us to build the church. He does not want us to actively labor on that. Satan opposes The Westminster Confession of Faith calls this war that we have with Satan a continual and irreconcilable war. Until Christ comes again, Satan will fervently oppose the building of Christ's church. He does not want Christians to build. And he will do anything and everything to keep you from actively building with other believers. 
Thankfully, this enemy we face is a conquered enemy. Jesus defeated him on the cross. And man, Satan will still roar at times. 1 Peter 5 says, but Satan is now a chained lion. For believers, for those who are hidden in Christ in faith, Satan's bark is way worse than his bite. And he may still harm believers at times when God sovereignly allows it. Satan stirring up flesh and blood at times to taunt and threaten and even persecute and martyr believers. But Satan cannot harm believers eternally. He can do nothing to harm them eternally. Every single believer is safe eternally in Christ Jesus. But when believers do actually rise up together and work to make disciples and build the church, church, Satan will oppose. A task, opposition, and I'll give you the next two things here together (laughs) because they go hand in hand, literally. Uh, Two more things that we see in this passage that we also find in the Christian life are tools and weapons. You know, one thing, you read through this passage, one thing I've always loved about this passage is this combination here of both tools and and weapons. This combination of both building and fighting or defending at the same time. You look at verse 16, just listen to this combination of of tools and and weapons or building and fighting. Nehemiah says, verse 16, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, that's tools, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, that's weapons. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. And then look at verse 21. So we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. It's just a fantastic mixture of both tools and weapons. Man, the enemy's threats at this point in the book, they are very, very serious threats. And the walls of Jerusalem are still very, very weak, still breaks in those walls. An attack at this point in time could have been devastating for the people and for the building project. So the people prepared. They kept building. They didn't stop what they were doing, but now they also armed themselves for war. Tools and weapons, shovels and swords, uh, spades and spears. Nehemiah's servants, he mentions them in verse 16. The Hebrew word there can refer to kind of a a specially trained group of men. So Nehemiah might have had this little group of specially trained men and they were divided down the middle. Half were assigned to construction and the other half were armed to the teeth. An armed militia of sorts ready to lead the people 
in battle, this combination of both tools and weapons, building and fighting or defending. And you see the same with the other builders. You look at verse 17, the people who carried the burdens, and and it seems that they probably carried the burdens maybe under one arm in a basket or a sack with maybe a strap around their neck. They apparently had the other hand free, and Nehemiah says they carried a weapon in that hand. The Hebrew word for weapon there can refer to some type of spear or javelin, so a burden and a spear. Uh, Pastor Thomas, a former uh, javelin thrower, many of you may not know. He would have been a great burden carrier here in Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm sure Nehemiah would have loved to employ him, a burden under one arm and a javelin in the other ready to chuck a spear. In verse 18, The people who actually built on the wall then, well, they apparently needed both hands to work on the wall. Uh, So what did they do? Well, they strapped a sword to their side. And just throughout the entire passage, this mixture of both tools and, and weapons, building and fighting at the same time, this is an armed workforce. And just just think of it, you and your fellow employees walking into your office building in downtown Minneapolis, a laptop for work under one arm and an AK-47 for war under the other. Hey, good to see you this morning. How are you? Uh, Tools and weapons, shovels and swords, spades and spears, and that's the Christian life. There it is right there. Charles Spurgeon, famous English preacher. He published a magazine back in the late 1800s and he titled his magazine, The Sword and Trowel. A title taken from that passage right there. And Spurgeon was saying with the title of his magazine, he was saying that is the Christian life. A sword and a trowel. A sword in one hand and a trowel, a concrete tool in the other. Pastor Thomas, once again, has done lots and lots of concrete work in his life. You may not have known. I'm telling you what, man, he was birthed out of a Nehemiah 4, this guy. He's very familiar with the trowel, this concrete tool, I'm sure. And man, Nehemiah would have loved to employ this guy. <laughs> Javelin in one hand, trowel in the other. And please listen to me. That's a believer. That's a Christian. That's what God has designed for each and every one of his people. Every Christian here is called to both build and fight at the same time. You're called by God as a believer to build with a trowel in one hand. Actively working with the other believers in a local church family to make disciples and expand and strengthen the church. But as you build, as you build and, 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 and actively seek to, to make disciples of your spouse, of your kids, of, of your lost neighbors, of, of your friends, of, of your family members, you will be opposed And therefore, you must have a weapon in your other hand. 
You need, you need to fight as a believer with spiritual weapons. Ephesians 6, you need to fight in prayer. You need to fight in the Word of God. Fight with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Those are your primary weapons as a believer. You must fight with them, building and fighting sword and trowel. And sadly, a lot of believers have nothing in their hands. They have no tool. They're not actively building at all, not intentionally working at all to make disciples. Might talk about it, but not really doing it. There's no trowel in the hand and also no weapon. and Not really fighting at all. There's, there's no real fighting in prayer. There's, there's no real fighting in, in the Word. There's, there's no fighting against spiritual enemies. There, there's no real fighting spiritual battles for kids and spouse and neighbors and fellow believers just coasting along a very sleepy and passive Christianity. A false form of Christianity. True Christianity is not sleeping your way to heaven. True Christianity is actively building and fighting your way to heaven. It is blood, sweat, and tears. It is roll up your sleeves and build hard and fight hard all at the same time. You can't drop one to do the other. You don't stop building to defend and you don't stop defending to build. God has called us to do both, sword and trowel. True Christianity is active. It involves doing. It's not just hearing. It is doing. It is fighting. It is laboring. And any form of Christianity that is not active is a dangerous and very false form of Christianity. It is not true Christianity. It is a very popular American form of Christianity A very easy believism where you sit and hear something and say you believe it and do nothing. But that is not a true form of Christianity. When the Spirit of God hits the heart of man, that Spirit of God raises you up and you begin to walk and you begin to build and you begin to to fight with your brothers and sisters. You will never do it perfectly, but you will do it. And we need to continue to exhort one another to do it. It's time for us to build and fight. So that's four things now. And a fifth thing here in this passage that we, that we also find in the Christian life. Leaders. If you look at the end of verse 16. Man, you got all, all these people building on the wall here. Kind of running around with their burdens and their weapons. And Nehemiah now says in verse 16, The leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. So you just think about the picture we have here, all the people on the wall, and now these leaders standing behind the wall, probably spread out around the city of Jerusalem. Some type of officers here stationed around the city, behind the people, also laboring, I'm sure, but just probably laboring in a different type of way. They might not have been acquainted with every single detail of the wall. They were more back, but they were more overseeing and supervising and communicating, probably passing 
passing messages to Nehemiah. And if you think about these leaders here, I think they were really on guard against the enemy, the first line of defense against the enemy. Listen, if the enemy attacked this city here, the, the enemy was not going to reach the people on the wall first. The enemy would have hit the leaders first. They were positioned in such a way where they would have been the first in the line of defense. A lot of leaders in our world, they want to be the last people to enter the battle, not the first. In the movie Braveheart, the the leaders of the English army, they would sit on horses way, way back away from the battle, just kind of giving orders and watching as their soldiers on the field were slaughtered by the ragtag Scottish army led by William Wallace, who was always the first to enter the fray. And these leaders here in this passage, like William Wallace will be the first in the battle, the first line of defense, guarding the people, ready to lay their lives down for the people. Leaders, leaders in this passage. Man, you think about leaders, you, you, you can't forget the leadership of Nehemiah here. I mean, my word, he's a fantastic leader. Nehemiah here in this book, he, this guy's an example of, of great leadership under fire. This man is, is under attack from all sides throughout this book. He, he's even trying to, to face down rumors within his own camp. And he just stands strong by the grace of God. Just continues to protect and guide and rally the people. Rudyard Kipling, he once said, If you can keep your head while all around you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, You'll be a man, my son. And Nehemiah, <laughs> he was a Rudyard Kipling type of man. Keeping his head while all around him were losing theirs, probably blaming it on him, a man. Leaders all over this passage. That's the Christian life. Jesus has placed leaders in his church. Elders or pastors being the primary office of leadership. And, and Jesus calls his leaders to be those types of leaders. Right there. Not the kind of leaders who stand on the hillside. Far from the fray. Giving orders and watching as the flock is slaughtered. But the first line of defense. The first in the battle. Ready to lay down their lives for the flock. First Peter 5. I exhort the elders to shepherd the flock of God. Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion. Not, not because you have to. But willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain. Not just for money and reputation, but, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. These are Jesus' leaders in his church. And man, the other people in a local church are called by Jesus to follow those leaders. Hebrews thirteen seventeen: obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Leaders 
in the church of Jesus. Those, those who lead and those who follow and submit to their lead. That is God's good plan for his church. And man, please listen to me. That will test hearts on both sides of the coin. Will the leaders in a local church really seek to lead like Jesus Christ? And will the other people in a local church really submit and follow their lead? It is not easy to lead. But it is also not easy to submit and follow the lead of others. I personally think in the American church that many believers probably submit to their bosses way more than they submit to their elders. They might submit to their elders on paper, but as soon as their elders say or do something they don't like, they object. And they wouldn't dare do that with their bosses because money's involved. But it will with elders. It's not easy to lead well. Man, it is also not easy to submit and follow well. I think it's probably harder at times to submit and follow well. But man, that's God's good plan for His church as leaders and those who follow leaders. And may God help us to do that well here in this church family. That's the fifth thing now, leaders. And the sixth thing here that we find in the Christian life, a trumpet. If you look at the end of verse 18, the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And Nehemiah says, I, I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us. You know, the Jews throughout history, their Old Testament history, they, they had uh, frequently used a long blast from a, what was called a Hebrew shofar, this, uh, this trumpet. Um, they had frequently used that blast from the trumpet as a call to action, a call for help. When, when the people heard that blast from the trumpet, they knew it was try, time to rise and fight for one another. And the man with the trumpet here, he stuck close to Nehemiah. You just picture him, he probably traveled with Nehemiah around the city, keeping eye on everything. And at the first sign of attack on any part of the city, the trumpet would sound and the people knew. You hear the sound and you run to help those who are in need. You hear the trumpet and you run to help those who are in need. And that's the Christian life. There are times in the Christian life when as a believer, you must blow the trumpet and ask for help. That's how God has designed you to function in the body. You must at times blow the trumpet and ask others beside you for help. You're dealing with some painful situation, maybe. A crisis in your marriage, or maybe in, in your family. A health issue, maybe. Maybe you're struggling with sin, you're, you're suffering, you, you are depressed, you're hopeless. Some sort of 
physical, emotional, spiritual pain. And God wants you to blow the trumpet and ask fellow believers around you for help. We are a body, the body of Christ. And when one of us is hurting in some way, the entire body, whether or not we know it, is suffering. If you break your ankle, your entire body feels it. And your ankle then sends out signals. I'm hurting. (laughs) And the rest of your body knows we got to (laughs) help. So your body then sends things to the ankle, sends blood to the ankle, other fluids to the ankle, all kinds of healing agents to that ankle. And that's how the body of Christ was designed to function. When one of us is hurting, we're all hurting. And God wants that hurting person to blow the trumpet and ask for help. And he wants the other people then, when they hear that cry for help, to come running and fight for those who are in need, for those who are suffering and hurting. And listen, please listen, you must, as a believer, blow the trumpet at times and ask other believers for help in your local church family. God never intended for you to walk out your Christianity alone. You're hit with temptation, you you fall into into sin, or, or maybe you're battling with hopelessness, suffering in some way, and you just try to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and go it alone. That is a recipe for disaster. You will get your head taken off if that's how you live your Christian life. We must cry for help as believers, and not just occasionally, but we must do it regularly, asking for prayer, asking other believers for counsel, asking them for guidance, asking for help with sin, with suffering. It's not, listen, it is not easy to do, is it, to ask for help? And, and you know what makes it so hard to ask for help? One word, pride. Pride does not want to blow the trumpet and ask other people for help. Doesn't want to do it. A proud person won't do it. He'll just go it alone. And the Bible says that God will resist the proud person. So wherever you're trying to just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and go it alone out of pride, guess who's resisting you? And you thought it was Satan. God resists us when we operate in our pride, when we won't ask other believers for help. God, man, God will resist, but the Bible says that God gives grace to the humble, to those who ask others for help. God will just lavish his grace upon you. Let me ask you, when was the last time you really and truly asked other believers for help? When was the last time you did it? When you are honest about your pain or difficulty and you ask for help. Listen, some of you right now, you are stuck in pain. You are stuck in a certain sin. You are stuck in a certain difficult situation. And one of the reasons you will not humble yourself and ask for help. You won't do it. And God is waiting. 
waiting to pour grace upon you. Grab someone. I would encourage you. That's you. If that just hits you, I would encourage you. You grab someone after the service today and you blow the trumpet and you ask for help. I'm hurting. I can't get past the sin. I'm suffering. Please help me. That's how the body was designed to function. And God will give you grace. I've experienced it here in this church. Many of you know that my wife Molly, when we were first married, was having some uh, really bad seizures. And they stopped for a while, but then just a couple of years ago, those seizures started coming back in, in a pretty bad way. And when Molly would get hit with one of those seizure-ish episodes, man, it would just take her down for really the rest of the day, incapacitated and, and in bed. And I was trying to to pastor here in this church at, at that time, uh, and then also trying to take care of five little kids at home. And I can tell you my pride resisted uh, for a while, but we were struggling, and, and I finally blew the trumpet with our elders, our other elders. And I just said to them, man, we, my family, we, we, we are basically in crisis mode right now. This is really difficult for our marriage. We um, are struggling um, to to get by in our family. Uh, We need some help. And I I love my fellow elders. You should love these men who lay down their lives are willing to for you. They did for us. They they cared for us in ways that um, you will probably never know uh, during that season. And God lavished us with grace uh, during that time. Uh, and it was through that call for help that I didn't want to make that, that God lavished us with grace and, and cared for us through them and through you, through them. So we are very, very, very grateful. And Molly is doing much better. I recently had to blow the trumpet with the elders yet again. Uh, the Lord over the past couple of years has been doing a really gracious work uh, in my heart, doing some, doing some pretty deep pruning uh, in my, my life, which has been really good for me. But one thing the Lord has done over the last couple of years is begin to kind of bring up in my heart some of these past wounds and brokenness that I felt just kind of got covered over, and the Lord's kind of bringing them up and doing a much deeper work of healing uh, in my own heart. But man, listen, when the Lord starts to go deep in your life, and he starts to bring up old wounds and old brokenness, and he's beginning to heal those things, man, that is exhilarating. (laughs) On one hand, it's so fantastic, and it's so incredibly painful on the other. And man, I just knew the Lord didn't want me to walk that out alone. I was processing with my wife and other friends, but man, finally went to the elders again and blew the trumpet and said, hey, here's where I'm at right now. And uh, man, again, the elders just have rallied around me and my family and just cared for us and uh, really, really helping us to to process uh, through that. Just the care that God has showered upon us. And once again, I just experience His grace through that. 
calling out for help even though you don't want to do it. The Lord is so good to lavish his grace upon the humble. I haven't done that all the time in my life, blown the trumpet and asked for help. I have tried many times to go it alone in self-sufficiency and God, because he loves me, has resisted me. (laughs) And I'm now learning the pathway to life is the path of humility. If you're struggling today in any way, humble yourself and ask for help and God will give you grace. A trumpet. The seventh thing here that we also find in the Christian life is clothing. You look at verse 22. I also said to the people at that time, Nehemiah says, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my sisters nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Uh, Nehemiah here, rather, rather than uh, letting the builders travel at night to their homes uh, outside the city, which would have wasted valuable building time and it would have left fewer people in the city to actually guard the city. So Nehemiah, rather than letting them walk all the way to their homes outside of the city, he had the men and his servants spend the night in the city. And Nehemiah says in verse 23 that none of them changed out of their clothes at night, remained dressed all night long, each with a weapon at his right hand. And I do not imagine that that smelled very good. After about a week there in Jerusalem, you start walking into the city and think, man, there's a stench in this place. Don't know what's going on. A men's locker room after just a two-hour practice stinks. (laughs) So, man, these guys have been in their gym clothes for many, many days now. This is not good. But they are ready. At all times. They are vigilant, alert, on guard, dressed. And that's the Christian life. There it is. And so, so many believers around the country, I think around the world, seem to live these sleepy Christian lives. Weighed down with the cares of life entangled with civilian pursuits, no real fervency in their spiritual lives, no, no real building or, or fighting, just, just a sluggish sort of Christianity, sleeping their way through prayer, sleeping their way through devotions, maybe sleeping their way through sermons. Just a sluggish, sleepy brand of Christianity. And man, yet the Bible tells us many times, many different ways that we must be vigilant. Mark 13, 33, be on guard. Luke 21, 36, stay awake at all times. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray. Luke 12, 35, stay dressed for action, Jesus says. Your lamp burning. Be ready at all times, alert, awake, vigilant, watching, praying. Rouse yourself by the Spirit of God. Wake yourself up by the Spirit of God. 
shake off the slumber. Get up. Put on the armor of God. Grab your sword. Grab your trowel. Stop making excuses and begin to build and, and fight. Dress yourself for action at all times. Clothing. So there it is. Seven things now. Seven things we see here that we also see in the Christian life. And the eighth and final thing we see here in this passage that we also find in the Christian life, here it is. A great big God who at all times fights for His people. Did you catch what Nehemiah said (laughs) really quickly in the middle of this passage here? Man, Nehemiah does a ton of labor here in this passage. He's organizing people and motivating them to build. He's preparing them to fight. He's arming them to fight. But then look what he says, middle of verse 19. This work, people, is great and widely spread, and we are separated in the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. (laughs) Amen. You put all that together. I mean, he's just telling the people, rise up, people, and build these walls. Harm yourselves, people, to fight against these enemies. Dress yourselves to, to fight. Take your shield, your, your spears, your armor. Be ready at all times. Strap your swords on your sides. When you're the trumpet blast, come running and fight. Fight, fight, fight. But, but, Nehemiah is saying, we must never ultimately trust in ourselves because the battle is not ultimately ours but God's. And Nehemiah was probably thinking there of some older, um, earlier Old Testament passages, earlier times in history when God had fought for His people. Nehemiah might have been thinking there of Exodus 14 Right before God defeated the Egyptians at the Red Sea, Moses said, Fear not, people. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. Or maybe Nehemiah was thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 3, when the Jews were later trying to enter the promised land. Moses said, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you. Or maybe he was thinking of Joshua 23, 3. After the Jews then successfully entered the promised land, Joshua said, And you people, you've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. And Nehemiah, man, you just picture this guy. You picture this guy. He's got all of this past history behind him. He knows these passages. He knows these things. And now he's in this situation. He looks at the people around this city, surrounded by enemies on all sides. His, his people, they're, they're weak. They're, they're few in number. They haven't fought a battle in over 150 years. 
He calls them to fight. He calls them to stand. He calls them to battle. But Nehemiah now reminds them the battle is not yours. It's ultimately God's. Do not fear, people. Do not faint. Do not panic, for our God will fight for us. Trust Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. And I think Nehemiah, in the back of his mind, he was probably thinking about Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who try to build it. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We must labor, people. Yes, we must labor to build these walls. And and we must labor, people, to watch over this city of Jerusalem. But we must never forget the battle is not ours, but the Lord's. And our great and awesome God, who has fought relentlessly for His people in the past. Our God will once again fight for his people today, trust him. And again, that's the Christian life. There it is. You know, there are things God has called us to do as believers. We have a huge task to make disciples and build the church. We face a serious opposition, an enemy whose craft and power is great. We must shake off our slumber dress ourselves for action. We must pick up our trowels, pick up our swords. We must begin by the grace of God to build and to fight at all cost. But we must never forget, the battle's not ours. It's ultimately, it's ultimately God's. And our God will fight for us. Our God is fighting for us. And we have a great big God who always fights for His people. You know that our God has fought for us in the past on the cross. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, living, dying, rising again to pay our penalty for sin. And if you now genuinely trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. You are forgiven. You're forgiven. God loves you. You are His child. He will never stop loving you, no matter what you do or don't do. God has fought for us in the past. And you know what? Our God will fight for us in the future when Christ Jesus returns. Revelation 19, Jesus coming in clouds, great glory, sitting on A white horse, his eyes like a flame of fire, many crowns upon his head, his robes dipped in in blood, and in his mouth a sharp sword with which he will finally strike down for good all of his and our enemies. Our God has fought for us in the past. Our God will fight for us in the future. Please hear me on this. Our God will fight for us right now. He will fight for us right now. The same Jesus who told us in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples, he also said, all power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and I will be with you. You cannot do it on your own, but I will do it through you. 
I will work for you. I will work through you. I will fight for you when you get up to make disciples and build my church. I will work for you when you fight to make disciples of your kids. I will fight for you when you fight to make disciples of your spouse and your neighbors and your fellow believers. I will be with you always. And I will fight for you always. Man, you, 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 right now, believer, you may not sense right now in your life that Jesus is fighting for you. You may not see him in your life right now. All you might see in your life right now is sin and and, and pain and anguish. But please hear me on this. Jesus Christ, whether you see him or not, if you are united to him by a simple childlike faith, he is right now fighting for you, always and forever fighting for you, never again fighting against you. Jesus always fights for his people. God the Father always fights for his people. Please listen. Some of you had earthly fathers who did not fight for you. They didn't fight for you. Not well anyways. They did not protect you, maybe. They did not defend you, maybe. They they did not guide you. They did not help you eternally. But please hear me on this. Your heavenly Father fights for you always. He loves you. He will never leave you. He will never stop caring for you no matter what you do. And he will always, always, always be fighting for you. Whether or not you can see him. Whether or not you know it. Whether or not you experience it. He is fighting for you. We serve a God who always fights for his people. Yes, he has called us to task. Yes, we have an opposition. Yes, we must rise and we must build and we must fight. But please hear me on this. The battle is not ours. It is God's. And God has promised when his people get up to make disciples, he will be with them. He will fight for them. And listen, because our God fights always for us, we will win. We will win. If you are in Christ, you are part of the winning team. Whether or not you feel it right now, you are on the winning team. We will win. Disciples of all nations someday standing up and worshiping the one true God. So trust Him. Believe it. Believe it. And man, William Carey's famous line, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. May God help us to do it. Father God, we thank you. (laughs) So grateful, Lord God, that everything is ultimately not in our hands. Yes, there are things we must do. You tell us in the word, Philippians chapter 2, that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we only work out our salvation, Philippians chapter 2, because you are already working in us to will and to do for your good pleasure. You tell us to make disciples. We cannot do that on our own. But Jesus, you promised you would be with us and you would fight for us. Father, we thank you that we serve a God who wins always. A God who fights for his people always. And we thank you that in Christ Jesus, we are on the winning side. We bless you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.